Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Colleges and universities two decades ago, helped, by the way, by an army of researchers, one of whom, Jonathan Robis, worked for me for a while before he decided to become a lawyer and make real money. Uh, When I started researching this a couple decades ago, I concentrated on the rising cost problem, which is very real. But the more I researched things, I discovered two other problems that uh, Mary Claire just mentioned uh, that are arguably more troubling. First, it appears the students graduating from college are not terribly knowledgeable about important things that help forge our common identity and thus bind us together as a nation. Uh, Related to that, the best study to date suggests that the critical reasoning and writing skills of graduating college seniors is not much more than that of entering freshmen. Why is that? For one thing, College students don't study very much. Time use survey, U.S. Department of Labor, other data, suggests that college kids spend on average about 27 hours a week on academics for maybe 32 weeks a year. They spend less time on academics than eighth graders do, and only a small fraction of the time that their parents spend working to enable their kids to go to school. Teaching loads have also fallen for professors, supposedly to allow them to write great papers to further our nation's cultural capital. But the dirty little secret of higher education is that few people read much most of this research. And even the buildings don't work very hard. Being largely empty at least four months of the year, and not very highly occupied on, say, afternoons late or early in the morning. Go to a typical academic building at 8 in the morning. If you found a faculty person in their office, you should take a picture of them because it's a rarity. Now, related to the problems of limited collegiate learning is something even more fundamental, I think. Often colleges are abandoning their traditional mission of serving as forums for free speech and expression, even ideas that seem somewhat far-fetched or crazy. Students need to face diverse ideas. The ideas of liberals and conservatives and radical leftists and rabid libertarians. They need to evaluate alternative perspectives on life. But too often, colleges have developed almost a religious fervor in favor of biological diversity 
such things as skin color and gender, while condemning even and even prohibiting idea diversity. Some schools want to protect their tender students from uncomfortable or disagreeable thoughts when their mission should be to have them confront diverse ideas and then assess them based on their acquired knowledge and experience accumulated over time. Yet the cost and lack of learning problems are not only the only challenges facing higher ed. As I indicated at the beginning, there's a third problem increasingly. Graduates are underemployed. We simply have too many kids graduating from college that believe they're going to get managerial, professional, or technical jobs that are highly paid. Far more than those kinds of jobs are available. Thus, we're getting a large number of kids who end up going to the college of last resort, uh, whatever that might be, Towson State, oh, I better not mention names, uh, some state university of modest reputation or obscure liberal arts college, they graduate with $40,000 or more in debt, only to take a job paying perhaps $30,000 a year, facing debt service equal to 20% of their disposable income. The reality is, going to college today is risky business for a large proportion of the American population graduating from high school. Of those going to a four-year college full-time, some 40%, roughly, fail to graduate within six years. Of the 60% uh, of those matric matriculating that do graduate, another 40%, or some 40% of them, end up taking jobs traditionally filled by high school diploma holders. Do the math. Only 36 out of every 100 entering traditional four-year uh, college graduates, uh, graduates of four-year programs, graduate, first of all, in a timely fashion and get a job uh, designed for those with higher levels of educational skills. Another way of putting it is 64 out of 100 fail in some sense to achieve their objectives. Uh, so in this new book of mine, which they've already removed, Restoring the Promise, uh, I go into a lot more detail on all this. Uh, uh, and in, in this little tour de horizon, uh, I fail to pick up on many of the dysfunctionalities and pathologies that pervade the collegiate scene. We could go on and on. Take intercollegiate athletics. Only in America does ball throwing and related sports event have anything whatsoever to do with college? Europeans are no doubt mystified in light of this college admission scandal uh, that students fake skills in playing tennis or rowing boats in order to gain admission to colleges. Uh, the phantom course, sexual misconduct, and other scandals surrounding college sports mass huge subsidies uh, that colleges and ultimately their students are paying in many cases, not at all schools, but in some, to support activities having little or nothing to do with learning. By the way, I love sports. Nothing in sports. 
what the heck does that have to do with college? Nor have I talked today about affirmative action and the growing scandals growing out of the civil rights legislation in the 1960s as manifested in such things as the recent lawsuit by Asian Americans against Harvard, which I predict, not being a lawyer, but I predict Harvard's at least going to partly win, uh, as well as the well-mean extensions of that legislation to cover such things as disabilities. We have in our audience today, for example, a person who was victimized by her own university, which used disabled students as a means to bring dubious charges against her as a way of harassing her to resign. The general public never hears about such things. Nor have I talked about the growing attempts to centralize American higher ed, to bring it under the control of the federal government. As I recount in my book, the U.S. Department of Education's creation barely passed the House of Representatives with 215 votes. Uh, a few people didn't vote, so they, it passed, but with less than a majority of the House. Uh, it was opposed by such liberal icons as Senator Daniel Patrick Monaghan, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. I, go read the history. I did. Couldn't believe it. I strongly believe that America's colleges and universities would be better off if the Department of Education had never been created and if the various loan and grant programs arising out of the Higher Education Act of 1965 had never been created. Uh, I occasionally am asked, what would you do to reform the Higher Education Act? My preferred answer is I would abolish it. Uh, but I wouldn't reauthorize it, certainly, in its current form. Let me return in my very, I want to end this shortly. I want to talk about the future and warn you that I am an economist. Economists are horrible at predictions, terrible. And it's the only example of market failure I've ever seen of any importance is that otherwise intelligent people still hire economists. Uh, to make predictions. Absolutely. I would flip a coin to, rather than talk to economists on predicting which direction interest rates are going to go. Uh, in 1798, the Reverend Thomas Malthus said the world was doomed to subsistence incomes and poverty because of the sexual desires of the population and the law of diminishing returns. Whereupon the greatest period of economic growth in the history of the world proved him spectacularly wrong. The most recent good example, a modern time example, is the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Christina Romer, under Obama, early 2009. She told us that if the Obama economic stimulus package were adopted, the rate of unemployment would not exceed 8%. Whereupon, we passed the stimulus package, and the unemployment rate rose promptly above 8% for 43 consecutive months, the first time it had done that since the Great Depression. So you're warned right now of anything I say in the last couple of minutes. So now, having said that, I think the <coughs> seven-year downturn in enrollments will continue for a while. 
And I doubt that the number of students in college in the year 2028 will be more than it is today. I think minimally 500 schools will close as Schumpeterian creative destruction at last comes to higher education, much needed, by the way. We have too many universities, and I hope that some of these schools die. They become higher education's grateful dead. Now, reform at colleges depends on three words beginning with the letter I. Information, incentives, and innovation. Despite being in the knowledge and information business, colleges do their best to keep the public from knowing too much about themselves. Do kids learn as much at Harvard as they do at Georgetown or George Mason University? Who knows? I don't. Do entering freshmen know that getting a gender studies degree from Towson State University is likely dramatically less rewarding in a pecuniary sense than getting an engineering degree at John Hopkins or uh, the main campus of the University of Maryland. Lacking marketing discipline, most of us in higher education have zero incentives to be more efficient. For example, to teach hundreds of students online rather than dozens of students in person. With the possible exception of prostitution, teaching is the only profession that has had absolutely no productivity advance in the 2,400 years since Socrates taught the youth of Athens. We need to end grade inflation to incentivize students to work more and party less. We need to align rewards in higher education with efficiency in better learning. Now the third I, innovation, I think uh, will be embraced if incentives are there for it to happen. If I could pick one thing to reform in higher ed, it would be the way we finance higher education. In a perfect world, we would get the federal government completely out of the student financial assistance business. If we can't do that politically, we should at least curtail the loan programs dramatically, putting more rigorous lifetime limits on the amount and number of years of borrowing, ending things like plus loans, and simplifying things to maybe just one loan and one grant program. The grant program limited to really low-income students and administered as a voucher to the student directly, not to the financial offices of the universities. Private loans will grow, and perhaps we should introduce or could introduce, would introduce ISAs, income share agreements, where students sell equity in, them, in themselves, as students already do at Purdue University uh, and some coding academies. Universities should have some skin in the game, uh, face consequences when their students default on student loans. Now, having said all these negative things and about higher ed, I probably should conclude on a more positive note, I guess. I should acknowledge that not all is bad. 
in American universities. I am in my 54th year of teaching, by the way. I have been teaching continuously for 54 years uh, because I think I do something worthwhile in instructing future generations. In some respects, colleges are more important than ever. No successful society has existed without them. Graduating from the top universities in the country usually enhances one's chance of becoming successful later in life. That's why we're in the midst of a college admission scandal. Uh, colleges are screening devices, telling, telling employers who the best and brightest of our nation's younger, younger people are. But spending $100,000 or $200,000 or more to earn a piece of paper demonstrating that fact is a very expensive way to demonstrate competence. And perhaps non-university mechanisms, including testing techniques, need to be more aggressively used. Why don't we have a national college equivalence exam that measures knowledge and critical thinking skills that might be even considered similar to the GED test that substitutes for a high school diploma? I don't know. Anyway, I've written a 400-page book about this. And uh, but time's a scarce resource. So let's stop now and have some questions. Thank you. Yeah, I'd be willing to answer any questions. I'm, I may sit down if you don't mind. I am at the stage of life where uh, I sit for my students anymore. They, they don't pay me very much. I figure, what the hell? Why should I stand for these kids? They should stand for me. By the way, when I go to Europe, this is a minor aside. When I go, I'm going to get you a question. When I go to Europe, I went to Russia, I've been to Germany. What happens when you walk in the room? The students stand for the professor. What happens in the United States? I'd rather not say. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I'm Nigel Ash for the Institute of Humane Studies. Yeah. You mentioned the three problems of the three I's, the incentives, yeah. information, and innovation. Yes. Normally, competition is the means of overcoming those problems. Higher education is competitive. Why isn't competition overcoming those problems? Competition works when it is not when the benefits of compensation are not offset by subsidizations that uh, prevent what Schumpeter called creative destruction from happening. Uh, the reason Enron went out of business, well, let's keep, maybe I shouldn't talk about specific comp companies, but Eastman Kodak isn't doing very well these days. Its stock is still being traded, by the way. Uh, it's worth about, the company's worth about $200 million now. It was worth 100 times that 25 years ago. Why? Because somehow they were unable to see what technology was doing to that to its main business and, and, and didn't develop it. So they paid a price. In many cases, the price is you, you die. You simply die. So competition in the, the market sector. Why doesn't it work in higher ed? Well, 
Governments subsidize people. Business, businesses that are uh, universities that are about ready to go out of business that no longer serve a useful function are, are subsidized. Now, state universities, of course, are. But it's also true of private schools. There is a scandal, and are we being recorded? Um, heads, I'll say this, and tails, I won't. It's heads. Uh, the historically black colleges and universities in this country are massively subsidized, massively subsidized, in addition to the student loans and so forth that the students already get. They get additional subsidies. Their, their enrollments have fallen. Most African-American students go to other universities now. They don't want to go to these schools. They view them as inferior, and so they go to other schools. But politically, we have to maintain them. I mean, I guess. Why, why do we do it? So we have massive subsidies. If Senator Warren gets her way, we'll increase those subsidies. I think she said $50 billion over the next few years. Yeah, I did the calculation, and it's like a million dollars a student or something. I mean, it's just massive subsidies. So the, the market isn't able to work in the way it would. Competition is saying, even to minority students, that there is an alternative that often is better. Now, I'm not trying to put them out of business, uh, although... I spoke, I keynoted, gave a two keynote address at the National Press Club to the HBCUs once, and one member of this audience was with me, and we, we both fled. We thought we'd never get away with our lives afterwards, because I said this, and they didn't adapt. They haven't adapted. They should adapt. They should be taking in uh, other types of students. They should be looking for new models, but they don't. They, they don't have to. They don't have to. Competition is not working because the government is subsidizing them enough, and I see that in my university, which has been around over two hundred years, first university in the old Northwest. Uh, and why? Um, government's dropping is is. Uh, Dropping money out of airplanes over campuses, and uh, it prevents the market from working. Yes, sir, the gentleman. Yeah. Um, hi, Peter Gross. I um, I want to meet you, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I went to. Uh, I was. I, I harassed your son into going to Europe with me. This yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, I harassed him to go meet you as oh, soon as he transferred yeah, from yeah, Utica yeah, to okay. Ohio University. He didn't yeah. listen to me. Yeah. I told him I have loved that book by Fetter uh, and Galloway. I read it about 15 years ago. But anyway, I just reread Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman that I read when I was in grad school yeah. at George Mason. And chapter one kind of gave me an epiphany it, to me, maybe. <laughs> and that is that he points out very clearly you, that there's, there's a direct link between freedom of speech and that you know it does that has to be political and economic freedoms to allow for political for freedom of speech and going pointing out that things like public funding of education especially from the federal level is going to deter or remove 
a lot of freedom of speech because of the fact that, you know, um, a public school teacher is going to, that espouses freedom or capitalism would probably be pushed out over time. And, and that can go in the universities, even though they do have tenure. I do realize that. But so um, my question is, do you think that we can make this that this argument can actually be made to progressives. So we have the one argument for all sorts of great arguments for why we need more bottom-up uh, organic uh, uh, voucher systems for the public schools and for what you're pointing out to a university. So Yeah, right. And so the point is, do you think that they... This, I think that we, we, can, we can show how... We always show how education, we believe, would be better as our argument. But I'm saying there's a second argument, and that is we should be pointing out to progressives that if you want freedom of speech, we also, is another reason to remove the link between the federal government or, and, and, and the funding of the schools. I, I completely agree, but I, I'm, I'm, I've got to tell you something, because you, you mentioned capitalism and freedom. In 2002 or 2003, I wrote Milton Friedman, uh, having reread Capitalism Freedom. Cap- Friedman said that there is a justification for government subsidies of universities. And that subsidy is that there are these, what we in economics call positive externalities or spillover effects. He said that in Capitalism Freedom. So even though generally Friedman was against government intervention in our economy, he did make an exception for education, including higher ed. He explicitly says this. So I wrote him, I said, Professor Friedman, do you still believe this? I, you know, I was shaking in my boots when I read this. Friedman, Milton Friedman wants all this stuff. He says, it's an interesting question. He says, there are some positive externalities associated with colleges, but there are plenty of negative externalities as well. He says, it's an interesting empirical question today whether we ought to be taxing universities or subsidizing them. So Milton, even Milton changed his opinion. I just thought it was an interesting. Uh, this was two years before he passed away. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, I don't know. Well, yes. There's questions all over the place. Yes, sir. Uh, you have the mic, so. Hi. Uh, Arthur Millick from the Heritage Foundation. Um, one thing to add to your analysis is that the universities have been uh, basically the, the focal point and the dissemination point of these multiple revolutions that we've had in America. The sexual revolution, the identity politics revolution, and now the clampdown on so-called hate speech. <clears throat> you said that you'd be happy if 500 of them closed. Why not 3,000? Um, and my question is, um, if that would be the goal, and I think that that would be a healthy goal, what precisely are the chinks in their armor that you haven't so far mentioned? One is student loans. The other is federal research funding. What else? Good question. Uh, by the way, I didn't talk about... I've I got to just make a comment on the research funding. Uh, again, something sounds noble. We need to support the uh, creation of ideas as well as the dissemination of them. We have made a mess of that. We have made a mess of that. In uh, just little things like the federal research overhead policies, 
Every university negotiates with the federal government as to how much overhead money they're going to get. Uh, I testified before the House Ways and Means Committee. I annoyed Harvard a lot. That didn't bother me particularly because I pointed out that Harvard, they have marble floors at Harvard, so they get more overhead money because they have to maintain more expensive floors than at Ohio University where we have linoleum floors. And uh, it's 70% overhead rate at Harvard. This is actual figure, 50% at my university. It shouldn't be 50% anywhere. It should be, if not zero, a very low number. And, uh, and constantly throughout higher ed, we see this. The there's a lot of, uh, let me just, accreditation is a mess. Accreditation is today handled by the federal government, ultimately. Uh, they have these committees, Nikiki, or what's the name of it? Nasiki, yeah, I actually almost became a member of that once. Thank God I didn't. Uh, I would have been, Ann Neal and I would have been run out of town. Uh, uh, what good does it do? What good does it do? Are we helping students identify students who, is this a quality, quality standard? Harvard and Bridgewater, Bridgewater State University are located 10 miles apart, 15 miles apart. They both have the same accreditation. The crediting agency, Harvard and Bridgewater State are the same. They're both good schools. That's such bull. We all know Bridgewater State's better than Harvard. <laughs> and by the way, that's another problem. How do we know? We don't have data. Maybe the kids are better at Bridgewater State. Because the kids at Harvard all start out with SATs of what, 15 and 50 or something, and uh, graduate uh, valedictorian of their class. And they know how to row boats and important things like that. Uh, uh, accreditation is a problem, intercollegiate athletics is a problem. Uh, the government plays a lesser role in that, but not a zero role. And uh, we could go on and on with others. Of course, affirmative action is a problem. Uh, we have all sorts of graduate education. Uh, a lot of this, 48% of the $1.5 trillion in student debt, the last figure I saw was 48, it may be higher, is held by graduate students and professional students. It's not held by undergraduate students. It's held by graduate students. Why should a student going to get an MBA at Harvard, where he or she knows that upon graduation, will be that he or she will be making what one hundred and fifty thousand a year? Why should they be able to borrow money at some discount rate from the federal government? Makes no sense at all. Why? You know, why do we allow it? Why don't we just put it, put it to its death? Uh, I didn't really answer your I evaded your question partially. I partially answered it. But that's the best you're going to get out of me today. There's a, a young lady here in the front. That's you. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. Well, I appreciate the, that very much. It's cheap. Words are cheap. <laughs> um, no, please do. So uh, 
I guess my questions go to two things. One is cost and the other is value. Um, as I've looked at higher education, I don't think professors necessarily are the problem. They get paid. I think they should be paid well. But there's this huge infrastructure that is built around them. So um, I'm from Rhode Island. We have three state colleges, and every single one of them has a diversity office. Uh, we're a real tiny state, by the way. It's 42 miles, so you can really drive. Um, but each one has a diversity office with three directors, assistant directors, and then all of the support staff offices. Well, that's intuition, right? That's built into tuition. And if you look through all the departments, you see all of these administrative levels that don't add to student learning but provide jobs. How do we, how do we uh, kind of attack that empire building I, I, that I goes on? That this is passion. I'm passionate about this. At, at the University of Michigan a year ago, there were 93 diversity coordinators for the University of Michigan. University of Michigan is a great university. There's no question about it. I, I love it. My father went there. It's a good school. Uh, 93 diversity coordinators? How about zero? Or at least, if you feel to meet the standards of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or something, why not five? When I started teaching, there were zero. Are we more... Is the reason we have a larger African-American population, greater Hispanic population, greater Asian population today because we have all these people around? Or is it because we feel we ought to take these students in? The, the, I think it's, these programs have done nothing but raise costs. And more than that, they have... We as faculty are often intimidated by these people. We are threatened by these people. Uh, you will do this or that. Now you have to have diversity. I was told last year I needed diversity training. I've been teaching 53 years, and the president of the university sent out a note, you shall report for diversity training. And I wrote him back, I am not reporting for diversity training, and almost said, I dare you to fire me because you won't. They backed down, by the way. Uh, I kind of wish they had. I wanted to write about this. I write a column for Forbes. I wanted to write about this. Uh, you know, the dollar fifty an hour they pay me or whatever it is is hardly worth it. Uh, and this administrative bloat is partly financed by all this student loan stuff I was talking about. It's, it's financed by other things too, but partly by that. Partly by endowments. I did a study on endowments. A lot of the endowment money ultimately goes to support rent-seeking, as we call it in economics, among the staff, and especially the administrative staff. So uh, I wrote the, uh, I have a column coming out, I think next Monday or something, it says if, you, if we automatically reduce the administrative staff at all American universities by 20%, which is probably not the optimal way of doing it, but if we did that, what would happen in higher ed? Nothing. It would work more efficiently because these administrators 
actually deter us from doing our, our job because we now have to fill out more forms because we got more assistant deans of this and associate deans of that. And they're crowding out academic decision-making. Now, I think professors are a weird group of people. I know because I've been with them for a long time. We're weird people, but we are pretty good at doing the basics that we do. We're pretty good at teaching knowledge, uh, basic stuff that people ought to know. We're pretty good at doing research, for the most part. And the academic administrators we hire are not that good at that. And they have other objectives in life. Improving the academic quality, improving uh, truth and beauty, and uh, even academic reputation is less important to them than meeting some narrow goals like we have improved our diversity and inclusion. My university sent out a, I wish I brought the form I meant to, a form the other day, you know, trying to raise money on Giving Day or something. And they said, I want to give to Ohio University. And then they list six reasons why they want to give. Number one reason was sustainability. Now, what the hell does that mean? How do you improve sustainability by giving to my university. We're going to put in a few solar plant panels at a cost of millions of dollars, and we're going to raise, we're going to lower the temperature on the planet Earth by one millionth of a degree in the year 2040. Is that worth millions of dollars? Of course not. But we do that because it's People feel good about saying it. Another one of the six things we ought to give money to my university was diversity and inclusion. Now, what the hell does that mean? What's diversity and inclusion? It means we should work hard to get look at people based not on their intellectual qualities, but on the basis of certain biological or group characteristics. What's their sexual preference? I don't give a damn what their sexual preference is. What does that have to do with learning? I don't care what color they are. What does that have to do with learning? I don't care whether they're male or female. By the way, there is a very significant good argument can be made that there's a war against males, particularly white males, on American campuses. You could make a very good case for that. But we can't talk about everything today. We're running short on time, so I want to... Chris, I just did one other, yeah. So the other one to value and academic rigor. Um, my son just graduated. It took him a long time, but he graduated, and one of his requirements was a six-hour course in climate change that was not taught by professors. And there was absolutely no science in it. It was their opinion. It was oh, yeah. what they'd picked up in magazines. I'm furious. I want my money back because I was paying the tuition, but I want my money back. No, um, and it was a requirement. Well, that's what I'm, the crowding out of academic standards by non-academics. That's what this is. It's administrators coming in to tell students that we need to talk about climate change more. And it's ideologically based. It's not rigorous. It's not based on academic standards. There's more and more and more of that stuff going on in universities. And uh, by the way, I testified before the Senate 
couple years ago, I, I thought to this poor woman, she got thrown out of the Senate by the voters of her state, thank goodness. McCaskill? Claire McCaskill in Missouri. She said, Dr. Vetter, you surely don't believe we would be better off without a Department of Education. You have to admit it has done a lot of good things for America. I said, no, I think we'd be better off if we didn't have it. You know, they had to practically bring the emergency squad in to revive her. And, uh, and, the, and, and I feel that way about almost everything that's going on in higher ed within the universities themselves uh, along the lines that you're talking about. Absolutely. If we got the government out of the business, though, and people were having the colleges, people were paying their way, and the colleges had to, uh, the gentleman up here talking about competition. If competition really were allowed to work unimpeded, I think we would solve 90% of these problems, maybe 100%. Well, I think my time is up, and... Uh, I'm at the age where I, I, I could say something gross, like I have to go have my depends changed or something like that. Uh, but I'm at the point where I probably should stop. And I want to thank you very much for coming. And if any of you want to buy my screed, 400-page screed on this out in the lobby, you're welcome to, and I'll be glad to sign the book. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for coming, and as Dr. Vetter mentioned, uh, books will be available outside. So thank you so much.